The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen, amen. Well, happy Mother's Day to you if you haven't met before. My name is Tim. I serve as the pastor here at Citizens. Really excited to to dive into God's word together. Uh, Moms in the room, we're super grateful for you. Uh, for, for a number of different reasons, uh, mostly that how much you sacrifice, how much you care, how much you serve, how much you display the gospel through the way that you sacrificially give of yourselves day in and day out to love uh, the people in your life. We're super grateful for you. Hopefully you have felt loved today. Hopefully you have felt honored and um, celebrated. In all, in all the many ways that uh, your family could. I also know that for a lot of people, Mother's Day is a day that is sweet but also bitter. For a number of different reasons, whether that be uh, hope and expectation that hasn't been met to to be a mom, whether that be through loss of a mother, whether that be through estrangement from family, whatever the case may be. And so if that's you, if you uh, are in that kind of bitter place today with Mother's Day, I want you to know that uh, you have a father in heaven who loves you who sees you, who is not absent from you in the midst of your pain and of your heartache, and that you have a church family that wants to love you and come around you and support you uh, in whatever way that that looks, uh, whatever way you need. And so uh, I want to acknowledge that that for a lot of us, it's it's a sweet day, but it's also a bitter day. And wherever you're at on there, that I hope that you find the gospel to be a safe place for you to hide, seek refuge, to to see uh, a God who loves you and a high priest who is merciful and near to you. Let me me pray for us, and then we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 together. God, thank you for today. God, thank you uh, for the opportunity to get to gather once again with your people. And thanks for your word, that it is true, that it is lasting, that it is uh, sharper than any double-edged sword. And it cuts, it divides. God, that there are times where we read your word and it is comforting beyond belief. And there are times where we read your word and it's convicting more than we can bear. One of this passage we're going to look at tonight is a a strong word, it's a hard word, but it's a good word. And so I pray that you will give us soft hearts to receive whatever conviction your spirit wants to bring. We love you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 4, if you got a Bible, Ephesians 4, we'll start in verse 17. Get there in just a minute, but I want to start today by telling you about my hypothetical friend named Bob. If your name is Bob, I'm sorry, that's just what you're supposed to name people in hypothetical stories. So, my hypothetical friend named Bob is 45 years old, he's the father of two kids, and he's a middle-level manager at a technology company. All right, so you're starting to picture Bob in your head. Let me tell you about Bob's daily schedule. Bob wakes up around 11 a.m., maybe 11.30, maybe noon. He spends a couple hours laying in bed scrolling through TikTok. 
Around two or three, he finally gets up and he's like, hey, I'm hungry. I'm heading to Taco Bell. And so Bob goes to Taco Bell, gets the $5 big box because he's cheap. Goes back home, he maybe goes to the gym, he works out for a little bit, he comes back around five or six, he takes a shower, he cleans up, and he's like, all right, time to go head out to the bars with the fellas. So he goes and heads to the bars, Sycamore, everyone's favorite South Charlotte brewery. Goes to Sycamore, stays there till about midnight or so, heads back home and is like, you know what, I'm not ready for bed yet, I'm gonna go play PlayStation for a couple of hours. Finally, around 2.30 or three, Bob passes out on the couch, ready to wake up and do it all over again. Now, this is a big-time hyperbolic scenario, right? Hopefully, you are not Bob in this picture. But I think any logical adult in the room would say that there's a problem with Bob. His life is not congruent with the roles that he has been given. He's a father. He's a husband. He's a mid-level manager. And yet, his life is not lining up with these identities, There's a disconnect between his identities and how he actually lives his life. What we're going to see today in Ephesians chapter 4 is Paul's going to hit on this exact same idea of a discongruence between our identities and our behavior, except he's not talking about any secondary identities such as father or mother, husband or wife, single or married, whatever. He's talking about our primary identity as followers of Jesus. He's going to ask the question, is your life congruent with what you say is true, namely that Christ is king? So if you've put your faith in Jesus, if you've turned from your sin and believed in him, you have a new identity in Christ, right? So remember back to chapter one, right? You were chosen by the father, you were redeemed by the son, and you were sealed by the spirit. Jesus in John three would say that you were born again, Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 would say that we are new creations. The old has gone and the new has come. And now in Ephesians chapter 4, what we're about to see is Paul's encouragement is to put off the old and to put on the new. Meaning, if you're a follower of Jesus, your life should reflect what is already true about you. You are a new creation in Christ, so now live like it. You must learn it to become, to live out what you already are. So let's look at it together. Verse 17 Paul writes, now this I say and testify in the Lord. So the word Paul uses for testify here can be translated as protest. It's strong language. He's pushing them. He means business. He's not playing around, which really Paul never really plays around, but especially not here. He's not playing around. And then he continues, I testify in the Lord, meaning God and Paul got a word. All right, they are coming for you. Verse 17 continues, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk or live as the Gentiles do. Now, he's not talking about Gentiles in regards to ethnicity. He's talking about Gentiles in regards to morality. He's setting up a distinction between followers of Christ and those who are not. And Paul says, you must no longer walk, which means that they used to live in a certain way. They used to chase after certain things. They used to order their life as if Christ wasn't king and savior. He says, you used to be this way. You used to hope, used to be without hope and without God, but now Christ has entered in. You've been united to him, so you should be different than everybody else around you. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. If Paul were writing this today, to us, he would say, hey, you must no longer live as your fellow charlatans. You must no longer live as the North Carolinian next door lives. 
There's a new way of life that you're called to. Everyone else is going to live their lives in a certain way. Everyone else is going to pattern their lives in a certain way. They're going to have a way that they view money and view time and view relationships and friendships and their home. And you are called to live in a way that is totally, completely different. This is the gospel. This new identity we have in Christ should change everything, both big and small. In other words, our budgets should be different. Our conversations and speech should be different. Our friendships and dating relationships should be different. Our parenting should be different because we are new creations in Christ. We have put off the old and we have put on the new. And then he invites us to continue to do this. We put off and we put on. We put off and we put on. And specifically, he's going to go after three areas. I got a chart for you note takers. You're going to love it. He specifically goes after three parts of their lives, their heads, their hearts, and their hands. In other words, how we think should change because of the gospel, what we love should change because of the gospel, and how we live should change because of the gospel. So let's break these down together. We'll start where Paul starts. He starts with our heads, with our minds, how we, how we think. Look again at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. So he says the old self is marked, the way we think is marked by two things, a darkened mind and separation from the life of God. He says this is who you were before Christ. You were dark in your understanding. You were separated from God. We just sang it, right? The last song we sang, we literally sang the words, I was in darkness all of my life. I never knew the day from the night. I swore I knew my way on my own, head full of rocks and a heart made of stone. So have you ever been in a pitch black room? Not like a little bit dark, not like sort of dark, but a little bit of light, like a pitch black, cannot see your hand two feet in front of you kind of room. What do you do in that moment, right? You step into the closet or whatever it may be, and it's pitch black. Besides cry for help, what do you do? It's not rhetorical. Listen, start feeling around, right? You're like, what is, what is in this room? I can't see anything. And so you start, oh, is, this, is this a table? Is this a lamp? Like what is, you start reaching for things because you can't see anything. And Paul says that's what happens in our minds separated from the life of Christ. We're darkened. And so we don't have a framework for how to view the world. And so we start reaching for things, trying to piece together reality and truth. All right, track with me, right? So we're, we're darkened, or we're, we're separated from the life of Christ. And so we start reaching, is this true? Is this true? Is this real? Is this real? And we start constructing, based on feeling in the darkness, what we think life is about. All the while, we're separated from the life and hope of Christ. But Paul says there's a new self. There's a new mind. The light of Christ has shown. Look at what he says. Skip down to verse 20. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and, be, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So the old self, the old way of thinking is darkened and separated from the life of God, but the new self has a renewed mind centered around the truth of Jesus in other words, Paul says when Christ comes and when he shines as the light of the world, you're not in a dark room anymore. He says you've been taught about Christ who is the truth, who is the light of the world. So you don't have to grasp at straws trying to write narratives about the world around you. Paul says you have the light of life. But here's the deal. He also says you need to be renewed. It's an ongoing process. 
We must continually reject the old, darkened, and clouded ways we used to think. We must reject the narratives of the world around us, trying to piece truth and reality together and continue to renew our minds in the truth of Jesus. Here's why. The truth of Jesus and the the narratives of the world are antithetical to one another. They're at opposite ends. Right? So you have the truth of Jesus. He who comes and says, I am the truth, is opposite from the narratives that the darkened mind of who we were before Christ tries to piece together. So let me give you a few examples of this. The narrative of the world is that many paths lead to God. Right? The, the, the term for this would be pluralism. What's your truth is your truth, and what's my truth is my truth. You can believe what you want, I'll believe what I want, and we'll be good to go. You don't infringe on me, I won't infringe on you. You believe your truth, I'll believe my truth. We'll live out our truths and we'll be good. This is the opposite of what Jesus teaches. Jesus says, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. In other words, you don't get to God but through him. And if you don't learn to renew your mind in that reality, it is going to crush your ability to live on mission. It's going to absolutely crush it. Because here's what's going to happen. You're going to step into your neighborhood You're going to step into your workplace, you're going to step into your friendships, and you're going to know in the back of your mind, Jesus is king, it's his world, I need to invite them into life with God, I need to invite them to turn from their sins and trust in Jesus, but that back of your mind, that lie of the narrative of the world is going to say, yeah, but that's kind of offensive, right? Like that's kind of, really, who are you to say that their way is wrong? Who are you to say that, that, they, that they aren't living, how are you to say that, that they don't know what's reality? But the Bible says Jesus is the way the truth, the life, and so we have to renew our minds. I'll give you another one. The narrative of the world is that if God exists, he exists to make you happy if you're a good person and generally do what is right. There's a term for that. Excuse me. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. God exists to make me happy and soothe the bad feelings that I have. That's his purpose. Scripture, Jesus teaches the opposite. God doesn't exist for your happiness. He exists for his glory. And in his glory is your greatest joy, but it's not found in him giving you the happiness. It's found in him giving you a piece of his glory, letting you see him and know him and worship him such that you find your joy in him and him being lifted up. If you don't renew your mind, if you live into the false narrative, it's going to crush your worship because your worship is going to be based on whether or not God's doing what you want him to do that week or that month or that day. So you're going to show up to Sunday not going, okay, I need to renew my mind and meditate on the truths of God's word because my life is blowing up. You're not going to step in with that. You're going to step in with God feels absent and distant, and he's not doing what I want him to do. It's going to crush your ability to worship. I'll give you one more. The narrative of the world is that the highest possible value is for me to discover my truest true self and then to aim the totality of my life at self-expression and self-actualization. One writer calls it the age of authenticity. I have to live my truth, and anyone who keeps me from living out my truth is toxic, oppressive, harmful, and needs to be canceled. That's not the way of Jesus. Jesus came to be served, not to be served, but to serve. Right? The way of Christ and his followers is not one of self-actualization, it's one of self-denial. We lay down our wants. We lay down our preferences. We lay down our desires for the good and blessing of others. And if you don't learn to renew your mind in this, it's going to crush your joy because you're going to think joy is through going after inside this internal truth and not through actually laying down your life where Jesus says is where true life is found and sacrificing. These narratives are pulling at us. They're pulling us. They're lying to us. And so Paul says, be renewed in your mind. Then he goes after our hearts. Verse 18 continues. He says, they are darkened in their understanding due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous. 
So the old self heart is callous and hard-hearted. Callous and hard-hearted. It's not simply that before Christ we were ignorant to God, but our hearts were cold towards him. Even though his glory was all around us, we couldn't sense it or feel it or experience it because our hearts were dead and our eyes were blind. Listen, we were made to know and be known by God. The very beginning, when God said it was very good, that's what was happening. God was dwelling in perfect relationship with man, and then Adam and Eve messed up, and they sinned, and they rebelled against God, and now sin has separated us from how we were designed to live in relationship with God, and yet we know there's still this longing within our hearts to return to that, to go back to relationship with him. And so what we do in response to the gnawing in our hearts is we reach and we reach and we reach for anything we think will fill the void within us. This is how 17th century French mathematician Blaise Pascal wrote it. He said, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. Apart from Christ, we're deeply aware of this gnawing within us. This is why we hate silence. Christian and non-Christian, we hate silence because when we're silent, When there's not something distracting us, no noise filling us, we're deeply aware of the God-shaped vacuum within our hearts. And so we try to fill it with anything we can. And as we push and push and push, our hearts become more and more callous to the things of God. But here's the deal. That's the old heart. God has given us new hearts. Look what God says to his people. Ezekiel 36. This is a jump out from Ephesians 4. Ezekiel 36. So God says to his people, he says, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So instead of a callous and hard heart, God says he's going to give us new hearts that are soft to God. God has done that, right? Ezekiel 36 is in the past tense. He says, I'm going to do this. If you believe in Jesus, if you embrace him and the good news of the gospel, he's going to give you a new heart that is soft to the things of God. Now, the command is to live in light of that, to continually resist our hearts hardening back against him. The threat to the Ephesian church, the threat to us, is that we would let ourselves be as we were before Christ, cold and numb to the things of God. Do not remember. Man, for those of you that are Christians, do you remember the first, like, six months of being a follower of Jesus? Like, just how sweet everything was? Like, just how good it was to get to be with God. Like, you were just like, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to say no to this sin. I'm going to get with community. Like, just how easy it was in those moments to go to church. How easy it was to say yes to God and no to sin. And yet, through the, the day-to-day of life, the week-to-week of life, the month-to-month, the years-to-years of life, if we're not careful, our hearts can grow more and more callous and cold and away from being a heart of flesh that God has given us. And I don't know about you, but I don't think I'm more terrified of anything in my life than my heart growing callous to the things of God. Like, I, I'm terrified of that. To my heart, being able to sit in worship and stand right over there and hear things like the grace alone of God that rescues me and redeems me, to hear things like no one took your life and yet you died so that I might live, and in the coldness of my heart saying, well, cool, Jesus. 
Like, I'm terrified of that. I'm not talking about seasons, okay? We go through seasons. I'm not talking about the seasons, the month, or the couple of months, because whatever's going on in your life where you just feel distant from God, even in actuality, though you're not, I'm not talking about those seasons. I'm talking about a routine, habitual, I have done something over and over and over again to numb the pressings of the Spirit in my heart. That terrifies me for me, and that terrifies me for you. Because I am well aware of my inability to make you care. Like, I've learned a lot of lessons over the past year, my first year of being a pastor. I've learned a lot. Probably the number one lesson that has stuck out to me is I'm unable to make you care about God. I just can't do it. I can plead with you, and I can pray for you, but I cannot make you want to fight your sin. I cannot make you want to wake up in the morning to read your Bible. I can't make you want to confess your sin in community group. I can't make you want to show up ready to worship. I can't make you want to repent and confess when you're wrong to your spouse. I can't make you want to be more patient with your kid. I can't make you want to honor God in your dating relationships. I just can't make that happen. None of us can. No one on our leadership team, your community group, your best friend in Christ, no one can but the Holy Spirit. So the question is, are you going to put yourself in a position to continue to be softened by the word of God and by the people of God? To lay before him, to say, I'm afraid of a callous heart. God, would you make me soft to the things of you? That's the second. Third, he goes after our lives. Talks about how we need our minds to be renewed. He talks about how we need our hearts to be refreshed, soft to the spirit. Let's finish by talking about our lives. Verse 19, Ephesians 4. Since they have become callous and has given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The old self hands are greedy for sin. Greedy for sin. Apart from Christ, our problem is that we are ignorant to God. We are cold-hearted towards him, but we know there's a gnawing in our soul, and so we're asking, what can fill it? What can fill it? What can fill it? And we keep reaching, will this satisfy me? Will this satisfy me? Will this satisfy me? Both sinful things and good things that we put in the place of God, which then make them sinful things. We keep saying, will this satisfy? Will this satisfy? And Paul is warning the Ephesians against this, reminding them, you don't have to chase that anymore. Everything you're searching for, everything you're longing for is available to you in Christ Jesus. Paul says they're greedy for sins because they're trying to satisfy their hearts. It's what psychologists would call the pleasure paradox. That the more you search after things to satisfy you and the more you need them to satisfy you, the less ability they actually have to satisfy you. I need this to give me life. I need this to give me life. I'm separated from the life of God. I'm alienated from the life of him. I need this to give me life. But Paul gives us a new invitation. Verse 24, he says, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So instead of being greedy for sin, we're called to pursue righteousness and holiness. To not run after the things we used to run after to satisfy. The new, the new self doesn't chase after all of these false promises of the world to satisfy us. The new self chases after God. So we know that that is where life is found. That is where joy is found. That's where satisfaction is found. Here's the deal. Everybody's doing it is no longer the call of the new self. It's no longer the refrain. Right? Everybody else thinks life is found here. Everybody else thinks life is going after that. And I used to think that too. But I have a new heart and a new mind, and I'm being renewed to now go after this King Jesus who's ultimately going to give us what I'm searching for and all those other things anyways. Life, joy, forgiveness, redemption, a peace with God. So how do we do this? How do we put off the old? How do we put on the new? How do we actually have our head and our heart and our hands look different 
Let's get into some nitty-gritty. I got four application points for us. Number one, become a Christian. Become a Christian. I love verse 20. Paul says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming, he goes on this aside, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. It's been a long time since Paul had visited this church in Ephesus. He'd planted it. We looked at that in Acts. And it's been a long time since he visited. And he knew from the other books, we know that Ephesus had a false teacher problem. They had a lot of guys in there, and men and women both, preaching heresies and false teachings about Jesus. And so Paul says, all right, this is how you learned Christ. And he says, wait a minute, pause. First, I got I to gotta ask, do we know him? He's like, assuming that you know him. Because before we get into all the putting off and putting on, I got to first make sure, do you know him? This matters, right? Before we start talking about all of this sanctification, growth in Christ, putting off the old, putting on the new, I got to ask, do you know him? Do you know Christ? Because the message of Christianity is not put off, put on, and then come to Jesus. The message of Christianity is not stop doing this stuff, then start doing this stuff, and then come to Jesus. The message of Christianity is not, hey, how good can you be at saying no to some bad stuff? How good can you be to saying yes to some good, some good stuff? The meaning of Christianity, the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus is not put off, put on, come to Christ. It's come to Christ. Justification first, then sanctification. First, the identity. First, the coming to Jesus, saying, Jesus, you live the perfect life that I cannot live. You died the death that I deserved, my sins deserved, on the cross, and yet you rose again three days later, defeating Satan, sin, and death. And so the first question, if you're not a Christian in the room, is not any of this stuff to do with growing in your relationship with Christ, maturity in Christ. The first thing you've got to deal with is the gnawing in your heart that says, there is a God-shaped vacuum, and you were made for him. Do you know him? Do you walk with him? You believed in Christ. You trusted in him for the forgiveness of sins. Christianity is not about a bunch of rules. It's not about religious attendance. It's not about a bunch of events. It's not about a bunch of culture and weird hoodies. It's not about warm feelings. It's not about this ooey-gooey stuff. It's about believing in Jesus. It's about receiving him. Forgiveness of sins, life eternal with God. If that's you, I'll be down front. I would love to chat. Number two. Talk to the Christians in the room. Stop compromising with your old self. Stop compromising with your old self. One of the things I love about this passage is that Paul leaves no room for justifications or excuses. There's no whatabouts going on in Ephesians 4. He's not like, all right, put off the old except for like this thing or put off the old except if it's like a hard week and like put on the new except if that's kind of difficult. Like there's no, there's no excuses. There's no what ifs. I think for, for most of us, the temptation in the room is not to be greedy for every practice of impurity. Like, I, I think most of us in the room, you're not laying in bed at night wondering, man, how am I going to chase after sin wholeheartedly tomorrow? Like, I don't think you're laying in bed, you know, like you've ever seen that meme where like the wife is laying there and then the husband's laying there and she's like thinking, what are you thinking about? And then he's like actually thinking about something different. I don't think any of us in that little thought bubble are like, man, I really can't wait to sin. Like, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and I'm going to rebel against God. Like, I don't think any of us have that. I'm not worried about us as a church family being greedy for every practice of immorality. Here's what I'm worried about. I'm worried about the little things. I'm worried about the justifications. I'm worried about the excuses. I'm worried about the yeah buts. I'm worried about the Jesus ands. 
I'm not worried about us running wholeheartedly towards sin. I'm worried about, about us creating a culture in which we're willing to compromise with our old selves. Make exceptions. Put in clauses. Thinking things or questioning things like, yeah, but did God really mean that? Like, I know I'm reading it in scripture. I know he says this or that, but did God really mean that? You know who else who asked that question? The devil, Genesis 3. I don't want to pattern my life after that. But we do this with excuses. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, I think this is so helpful. He calls this temptation to excuse things. He says the temptation to be, quote, almost innocent. Being okay with being almost innocent, almost righteous, almost holy, giving in just a little bit because I've had a hard day or a hard week or a hard month or a hard life or this is just who I am or I just can't help myself or it's really not a big deal. Can I step on your toes a little more? Here's how we view it. I'll take off my old self jacket. I'll take off my old self pants. I'll even take off my old self shoes, but don't touch my socks. That's my socks. I'm in on Jesus. Don't touch my socks. And I'll put on my, old, my new self jacket, and I'll put on my new self pants, and I'll put on my new self shoes. You, don't even, you can't even really tell. You can't really see the socks. You have no idea that I'm wearing socks. Pay no attention to my feet. We justify, we excuse, and we think things like, yeah, Jesus and. I'm in on Jesus. I'm in on this church thing. I'm in on following Christ, but I got to have this too. Can I have this too? Jesus and, Jesus and, Jesus and a comfortable life. Jesus and, like just the occasional porn binge because it's been a hard week. Jesus and, like just a little bit too much to drink because it's Friday and I'm unwinding. Jesus and my non-Christian girlfriend because I really think I can change them. Jesus and my apathy towards my neighbor because somebody else is surely going to tell them about Jesus and I'm a little busy. Jesus and this one thing that I know is not okay based on scripture, but I found a way to reason my conviction down to a manageable level as long as I'm not quiet before the Lord. Just me? What's that thing? What's that thing? I got my things. Right in this sermon, thinking about them. I got my things. Preaching it right now, I got my things. That it's like, God, you can have all of my life. You can have everything you want. Just, can I, can, what about that thing? Like I, just, I just can't help myself. Sometimes I just explode. I, my, my spouse, I just can't help myself. Sometimes I run after, I just can't help myself. Jesus and. The Bible pushes against this so strongly. I'll give you a few. Romans 13, 4. Paul says it this way. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Colossians 3, Paul's talking about this same idea, put on, put off. He says it this way, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Matthew 5, 29, Jesus says it this way, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. I'm pretty sure that's hyperbole. I wish, I think. The message is still the same. It's not a joke. It's not a game. Your sin caused Jesus to go to the cross. Stop compromising with what killed Jesus. Jesus died because your sin and my sin were a big deal. And yet we have every justification in the book. I've made all of them and I've heard all of them to excuse it away. Say this, nah, not that one though. Ah, that one's okay though. Oh, but like, did he really mean that? Like I've read this other interpretation and I got into the Greek. Like surely I found this blog that agreed with me. So I don't think Jesus meant that, right? Stop compromising 
with your sin. It's not going to compromise with you. Your sin will not play games with you. It wants all of you. Don't let it. Don't let it. Number three, join God in the work of personal renewal. Join God in the work of personal renewal. Go back to verse 23. Paul says, and be, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Let me Greek nerd out for just a second. I know it's application, but let's just go back real quick to the text. In verse 23, Paul says, be renewed. Right? He's using a middle tense verb. Now, we don't have, I don't think, English teachers, you can tell me later, I don't think we have a really good equivalent of this in English, but in the Greek, a middle tense verb is what you use when something is both the subject and the object. It's both the person doing the action and receiving the action. And so when Paul uses this tense of verb to say be renewed, what he means is that we are both the ones doing the renewal and receiving the renewal. So what does that mean? God day in and day out is working on you. He's renewing you. He's softening you to him. He's renewing your mind. He's working on your life. And you are also called to join him in that work of renewal. All of the Christian life, we say this a lot, all of the Christian life is joining God in the work he's doing. All of it, right? Mission. When you step out on mission, you're not stepping out making something happen for the kingdom. You're stepping out joining God in the work he's doing in the world. The same thing is true for your own growth in Christ. You're not just trying to make it happen. I just got to make myself follow Jesus. I got to make myself soft to him. I got to make myself renew my mind. No, you're stepping into what God is already doing and has been doing since the minute you followed Christ. And before, even you receiving Christ was a work of God to initiate, to work, to move. Philippians 2 says it this way. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. It's both. And here's why this matters for us. We are tempted to think of our Christian growth, our sanctification, like a light switch. Right? We want to go to one church gathering. We want to go to one community group time. We want to read our Bible once. We want to say one prayer. We flip the light switch, and suddenly the lights of holiness are on. And I'm holy, and I'm following Jesus, and everything's great for the rest of my life. But here's the deal. Christian growth, sanctification, is much less like a light switch and much more like tending to a fire. Let me free you up here because some of us, we put way too much pressure on our individual daily spiritual disciplines, and we don't have a view for the long game that those spiritual disciplines are creating within us. It's much more like tending to a fire. It's adding kindling to the fire. Kindling is that small stuff you put around the logs, or I watch my wife put around the logs because she does the fires in our backyard. It helps grow the flame. It helps nurture the flame. And that's what we do when we get with God. We kindle the fire that he has already started by the power of his spirit. He sets it aflame. He tends to the fire. And yet we are called to put kindling around it to help grow our hearts and affections towards Jesus. And that means every little decision you make day in and day out is kindling. Choosing to read your Bible is kindling. Choosing to show up to community group and participate is kindling. Choosing to love and serve your spouse self-sacrificially is kindling. Choosing to sing, be connected to worship is kindling. Choosing to put software on your computer to help fight against porn is kindling. Choosing to turn off Netflix and engage with your neighbors or spouse or roommates is kindling. The person you are going to be in 20 years is who you are, are, who you are today and who you are becoming today. We think life is made up of the big moments. And listen, you're going to have some of those following Jesus over the course of your life. You're going to have a few, hopefully, giant, God just changes your heart type of moments, but most of following Jesus is day in and day out, little bit by little bit. 
I love how Eugene Peterson says it. He says, the enormous interest in spirituality these days is not accompanied by much, if any, interest in the long and intricate and daily business of formation in Christ. That is the practice of the disposition and habits of the heart that changes our word spirituality from a wish or a desire or a fantasy or a diversion into an actual life lived to the glory of God. Most of us in the room want to be more like Jesus in 10 years. The question is, are you willing to do the little daily things to actually make you more like Jesus then? You want to put in the little steps. You want to do the kindling. Number four, we'll close with this. Let's land the plane. Number four, keep going back to the gospel. Keep going back to the gospel. I love the end of that song we just sang, how it repeats the refrain over and over and over again. In grace and grace alone, through grace and grace alone, I'll slay my sin by grace and grace alone. I'll reach the end by grace and grace alone. Over and over this refrain that it is the grace of God. You can't separate out Ephesians 4 from 1 through 3. Right? You can't separate out the commands of Paul where he says, hey, put off and put on away from what he's just told us over and over and over again in chapters 1 through 3, that we are redeemed, that we are chosen, that we are forgiven, that we are washed clean, that we are made new. And we don't move past the gospel in the Christian life. We go deeper into chapters 1 through 3. How you put off and how you put on is by going deeper into the good news of the gospel for you, saying, okay, in light of what Christ has done, as I learn to dwell in that more deeply, here's how I live in light of it, which means you live the Christian life not for your adoption to Jesus, but from your adoption to Jesus. You live the Christian life not for your forgiveness by Christ, but from your forgiveness. You don't live the Christian life for right standing with God, you live from right standing with God. You don't live for approval, you live from the full approval of the Father. So if you're in Christ, the good news for you is that he views you as righteous, views you as holy, he views you as he views Christ, clean, perfect, chosen, redeemed, forgiven. So you're free. You're freed up to seek congruence. You're freed up to try. You're freed up to seek the spiritual disciplines. You're freed up to go after Jesus. And you're freed up in all of that, motivated by the good news of Christ, not in order to receive the graciousness of Christ. If you're in Christ, the good news for you, regardless of how today has gone, this week has gone, this month has gone, this year has gone, the good news, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have received him for forgiveness of sins and life forever with God, you right now are declared holy, blameless, spotless before God. And so now the invitation is learn to live in light of that and learn to live a life that is congruent with that. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for Ephesians 4. God, thank you for the truths of Scripture. God, that you call us not to compromise with our sin, but to put our sin to death. God, that you call us not to play games, but take our walk with you seriously. And thank you that the gospel is free, that salvation is free, that grace is free. God, but thank you that it was also costly. And our sin took Jesus to the cross. It's a big deal. God, would you help us to see that, that putting to death our old selves and learning to put on the new self, which you have already done and are already making us new in Christ, that joining you in the work of what you're doing within us, God, is a privilege and a blessing and a grace gift from you, that all is grace. We need you for the Christian life. God, we need you for the journey of holiness. God, it's a long road full of suffering, full of pain, full of heartache, full of temptation and trial. God, yet you're near. 
You're close. You're full of grace and compassion, God. You're patient with us. Your kindness leads us to repentance. We love you. Probably things in Jesus' name. Amen.